We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the first piece in Hilchos Masa Karbanos. This is Parak Yud, Halacha Yud Beis. Now, these halachas in general focus on the process, how to do a karban. But the issue that Rab Chaim is discussing in this first piece is sort of unrelated. It has to do with an issue that he's revisited a number of times already in the second piece in Hilchos Chametzumatza, as well as in the last, the seventh piece of Hilchos Masa Karbanos, And that is that when the Torah prohibits eating something, it prohibits not only eating the item itself, but even the taste. This is what we call ta'am ke'ikar, that the taste of a prohibited food item is also prohibited. So Rab Chaim wants to understand what the nature, what the conceptual understanding of that halacha is. The Rambam writes, Chaticha shal kodshei kodshim o shal pigol o nosar. There's a piece of meat from a carbon which is prohibited for a non-kohen to eat. Or if that meat was pigol, so it was an invalid carbon because the kohen had the improper intention. Or if it was nosar, so it's left over from the time with which it had to be eaten. So in those latter two cases, the kohen also can't eat it, but he's still different from a non-kohen because originally he could eat it. So if any of those three types of pieces of meat, which are more prohibited to a non-kohen than a kohen, got cooked with other pieces of meat, the whole dish is prohibited to non-Kohen, but permitted for a Kohen. So this is the basic halacha of tam ke'ikar, that even if it's not the prohibited item itself, because it's been batel, it's nullified in the overall dish, but if there's a taste of the prohibited item, then it's still prohibited. Now this halacha comes from the Mishnah in Arla, Parag Bey's Mishnah Test Zion, and the beginning of the Mishnah is exactly what the Rambam said, that if a piece of kodshei kodshim or pigol or nosar got mixed in and cooked with other pieces. So osr lezarim umutar lekohanim. It's prohibited for non-kohanim and it's permitted for kohanim. But that's the opinion of the rabbis. Reb Shimon mater lezarim ule kohanim. Reb Shimon disagrees and he holds that it's permitted for everyone, even a non-kohen. So the Rambam is clearly ruling like the original view, the rabbis, against Reb Shimon. But more than that, the Rambam interprets the case of the Mishnah as O-O Ketani. That there's three different cases that are mentioned here. If either Kodshe Kodshim, so a carbon meat, gets mixed in with other meat, or if Pigol gets mixed in with other meat, or if Nosar gets mixed in with other meat. So each of these is a separate and distinct case. And the debate between the rabbis and Reb Shimon is whether the non-sanctified, the regular meats, are able to nullify the sanctified meats. So Reb Shimon holds that they are, and anyone, even a non-Kohen, could eat it. The rabbis disagree, and they say that only a Kohen could eat it. So the Rambam rules like the rabbis in each of those cases. Now, the problem, as Rab Chaim points out, is that the two Mishnahs previous to this one, so Arla Parag Bey's Mishnah 14 and 15, have a similar setup to this Mishnah, but the Rambam interprets them totally differently. So Mishnah 14 talks about about seor shall truma v'shal klai hakerem, if you have yeast or like sourdough of truma, so it's prohibited to a non-kohen, as well as klai hakerem. Klai means that there's a mixture of species that are not allowed to be grown together. So you have two types of yeast which are prohibited. One is prohibited only to non-kohanim because it's truma, and one is prohibited to everybody because it's klai. And then they got mixed together, both of them in the dough, 
lo lo Now, neither one on its own has the ability to turn the dough into leaven, but together, if you combine them, then they are able to leaven this dough. So there's a debate. The rabbis hold that it's prohibited to a non-Kohen, but a Kohen could eat it. And Reb Shimon holds that everybody, even a non-Kohen, could eat it. Now, the case in that Mishnah is not whether each of those alone has the ability to prohibit the larger piece of dough, but if we combine them together. So even though they're prohibited for different reasons, one is Truma and one is Kalayim, do we combine them together in order to prohibit the larger dough? And there the rabbis hold that we do combine them and Rab Shimon holds that we do not. Likewise, Mishnah 15 is similar. Tavlin shall truma v'shal klai ha-kerem. If you have spices of truma and spices of klaim. So again, there's two different prohibitions. One is prohibited for everybody, even the Kohen. One is only for non-Kohanim. So they got mixed into a larger dish. Lo be'eluk de le'tavel, lo be'eluk de le'tavel. Neither one alone has the ability to spice up this dish, but together they are able to create a taste in the dish. So the rabbis hold, it's prohibited for non-Kohanim. Only Kohanim can eat it because again, we combine all the spices together in order to prohibit the larger dish. Reb Shimon disagrees and he holds that everybody could eat it because we view each of the spices differently. We do not combine things which are prohibited for different reasons together in order to prohibit the larger dish. So in those earlier two Mishnah it's clear that Reb Shimon and the Rabbanan are disagreeing about whether we combine two different prohibitions in order to prohibit the larger dish. And that's how the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah explains them. And that's also how he rules in Hilchus Machalas Asuros, Perak Zion. So the Rambam is clearly interpreting those Mishnayos that way. So why, when it comes to the third Mishnah, does he suddenly change course and he starts interpreting it as three independent cases? Why doesn't he use the same model and interpret it as when there's three pieces of meat that combined together and each one alone does not have the ability to to create taste, but all together they do. So that would be consistent. And then the Rabbanan and Reb Shimon are disagreeing about the exact same thing that they've already disagreed about twice before. Do we combine separate prohibitions in order to prohibit the larger dish or not? So why didn't the Rambam keep this all consistent? Instead, he starts interpreting the third Mishnah as referring to three separate cases. Now, Reb Chaim points out that there is a linguistic difference between these three Mishnahs which may point towards the Rambam's interpretation because the first two have this line which says that neither one alone has the ability to influence the larger dish. But the third Mishnah, which the Rambam is now ruling on, omits that line. So it doesn't mention anything about each piece alone not being able to create taste in the larger dish. So that indicates, like the Rambam, that here we're no longer talking about when the pieces combined, like the earlier two Mishnayos, where it made that clear. But in this Mishnah, it omits that line because it's a totally different case. It's not talking about when the three pieces combine together. It's talking about when each one one separately got mixed in with regular meat. So the language of the Mishnah does allow for the Rambam's interpretation, but still Rab Chaim wonders why did the Rambam feel a need to change the interpretation
interpretation, if it was working well for the first two Mishnayos, why not just keep the third Mishnah consistent? What was the point of changing the way he interprets the third Mishnah? And the Kesef Mishnah and the Lecha Mishnah also raised this issue. So in order to answer this, Rab Chaim goes to another Mishnah at the beginning of the second chapter of Orla. The Mishnah talks about a case of Orla, which is the fruit of the first three years, which is prohibited to eat. The Klai HaKerem, and again, Klaim is a mixture of two species. So if you have produce which is prohibited from Orla or Klaim, Olin Be'echadu Ma'asayim, they're nullified by 200 other regular produce. Umitztarfin Za'im Za'. If you combine them and you eat them together, so they count together towards the minimum measurement to get punished. So we take both of these different prohibitions and combine them in order to create the minimum measurement. Reb Shimon Omer, Einar Mitzdarf, and Reb Shimon says that we do not combine them. So this is a related case. It's not exactly the same case we've been discussing because here the issue is not Tom, it's not the taste, but it's the actual item itself, which is less than the minimum measurement. So we need to combine both items in order to be able to punish the person. Now, the way the Shalmi explains this machlokas is that the first opinion is Rabbi Meir, and he holds that you can combine different prohibitions in order to punish the person, even though in general the punishment has to be for a specific prohibition, because there's a pasuk lo sochal kolto eva, that you shouldn't eat any abomination. So that's sort of a catch-all generic prohibition that includes any other prohibition. So that's the unifying prohibition which makes it that we can punish someone even for eating two different items from two different prohibitions because they're both included in Los Sochal Kolto Eva. Now, says Rab Chaim, if it would be consistent that all of these debates are the same, so then what would follow is that in the later Mishnayos, which we've been discussing earlier, the first opinion is also Rebbe Meir, and again, even though the different prohibitions don't combine their tastes in order to prohibit the overall dish, but since there's this catch-all prohibition of Los Sochal Kol Toeva, so they're all included in that prohibition, and that unifying Toeva prohibition is what prohibits the whole dish. So that would be the way to interpret all these Mishnayos as consistent that Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Shimon are debating in each of them whether we apply this Losochal Kol Toeva in order to bring together all the prohibitions, either in terms of punishment or in terms of the taste prohibiting the overall dish. Rabbi Meir holds that we do apply that Toeva catch-all prohibition and Rabbi Shimon disagrees consistently in each of them. The problem with that approach, though, is that the Rambam in Hilchos Macholos Asuros, Perik Dalit and Perik Yudalid, explicitly rules against Rebbe Meir that we do not punish someone for eating two different prohibitions. We do not combine them under the To'eva prohibition. So if the later Mishnayos are consistent and they also reflect the same debate between Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Shimon, then it should obviously follow that the Rambam rules like Rebbe Shimon in each of those cases because that would be the consistent halal. But in fact, the Rambam rules like Rabbi Meir in Hilchos Machalos Asuros Perak Tesvav Halacha Yodalid. He rules like Rabbi Meir that we combine the yeast of Arla and Klai HaKerem together in order to prohibit the whole dough. And then in the next chapter, Perak Tes Zayin, he rules again like Rabbi Meir in the case of the spices of Truma and
and Klai HaKerem that we combine them to prohibit the whole dish. So the Rambam clearly differentiates between these different Mishnayos that there has to be a different debate. That's why in the first Mishnah he rules like Rabbi Shimon, but in the later two Mishnayos he rules like Rabbi Meir. It cannot be that the debate is consistent throughout all of those Mishnayos. So according to the Rambam, there are two different debates going on here. The first is in the first Mishnah, where the general assumption is that in order to be punished, a person needs to eat a full shear, the full measurement. And if they didn't do that from one prohibition, then they can't get punished. We're not going to combine two different prohibitions in order to create the measurement for punishment. Except according to Rabbi Meir, that there's another Pusik in the Torah, which serves as a catch-all. So under that one violation, we're able to include items from different prohibitions together, and therefore we can punish the person for violating that toeva prohibition. So Rabbi Meir has a way around the general principle that we don't combine two different prohibitions for the punishment, but Rabbi Shimon disagrees with that approach, so therefore we remain with the general rule that we don't combine different prohibitions together. That's all in terms of punishment. But with regards to the issue of combining two different prohibited tastes to prohibit the larger dish, so there we don't need to combine the tastes. The whole mechanics of this question works totally differently than for the punishment, because we don't need any combination between these various tastes. All we need to know is that if the larger dish cannot nullify all of the various prohibited tastes that are in it, so then the whole thing is going to be prohibited. But it's not because we need any combination between the different tastes. So since we don't need a combination between the tastes, it doesn't matter if they come from different prohibitions and we don't need to resort to the Toeva catch-all prohibition to include them all together. So that's why there's a major difference between these different Mishnayos. Even the view in the first Mishnah that we do not combine different prohibited items for the punishment, but that's all when we need a combination. With regards to the taste where we don't need a combination, so there we could use different prohibited tastes because so long as there's a lingering taste of prohibition in the whole dish, however it got there, and from however many tastes it got there, that's going to prohibit the entire dish. So the first opinion which disagreed with Rebbe Meir with regards to combining prohibitions for the punishment could still hold that we do combine different prohibitions with regards to the taste. So that's exactly how the Rambam divides his rulings. In the first case, he rules against Rebbe Mayor, like Rebbe Shimon, that we do not combine different prohibitions for the punishment. But in the later Mishnayos, he rules against Rebbe Shimon that when it comes to taste, we do use different taste prohibitions in order to prohibit the overall dish. So now Rab Chaim comes in the third paragraph to the next step in trying to explain why the Rambam explains the last Mishnah differently than the two before it. And this is his key conceptual point of the piece, which is why is there a prohibition of Tam Ki'ikar? Why is taste prohibited under Halacha? Is it because in general to eat something prohibited, it needs to be nullified by the permitted food? But if there's a taste that 
lingers from the prohibited food, that means that it was never properly nullified. Nullification would mean that you can't taste any of the prohibited food anymore. But if you could still taste it, so then that means it wasn't nullified to begin with. Or do we say that it was nullified, but there's a separate prohibition of Tom Ke'ikar, the prohibition of taste is a separate prohibition, even though the item was fully nullified, there's still a prohibition if you can taste that item. And this would almost be the surface reading of the halacha because the language in the Gemara is ta'am ke'ikar, that there's a prohibition on the taste just as there is on the food item itself. So that sounds like the taste is a separate prohibition. And also the sources in the Torah where the Gemara learns it out from are the dishes that had non-Jewish, non-kosher food taste lingering in them or the nazir who's not allowed to have wine products if he uses a dish that has the taste of grapes in it. So again, the surface reading would be that there's a separate prohibition on the taste alone, nothing to do with whether it was nullified or not. Even though we assume that the food item was fully nullified, but the taste is still prohibited on its own. So Rab Chaim lines up proofs to either side of this question. First, he suggests like the first approach that there's no nullification of the taste because the Mishnah in Chala in Parak Gimel has a case where you have dough which has combined wheat flour as well as rice flour. So there's both the taste of wheat and rice. And the Mishnah says that if you can taste the wheat, then you have to take Chala from this dough. And you could use the dough for matzah for Pesach. And the Gemara in Zvachim Dafayin Ches explains that it's based on this halacha that min b'she'ino mino, when you have two different species, so then we follow the taste. So that's why if you can taste the wheat, so then you can use it for matzah. So now this is different than the standard case of ta'am ke'ikar, of taste, because generally we're talking about where there's a prohibited taste, which prohibits the whole dish. Here we're talking about fulfilling a mitzvah of matzah based on the taste. So says Rab Chaim, if the idea of taste is that it's a separate prohibition, so then that should have no relevance to the mitzvah of matzah, because that's not a prohibition, that's a mitzvah. And the whole concept of taste is that prohibited items remain prohibited if the taste lingers, even though they were nullified. We learn it out from the nazir eating something prohibited to him or from non-kosher food. But we never find that taste is a factor for a mitzvah. So if the wheat flour is nullified, there's just a lingering taste, then there should be no reason to fulfill a mitzvah based on that taste. So it must be, says Rab Chaim, that it's the other approach, that there was never a nullification of the item to begin with because you could taste it. So there, even though the Torah's examples have to do with prohibited food items, but once we understand this general rule that an item is not prohibited so long as its taste lingers, so now we can apply it also towards mitzvahs. So so long as you can taste the wheat flour, that means that the wheat flour itself is not not nullified, so therefore you can use this for the mitzvah of matzah. So Rab Chaim proves like the first approach that when there's taste, there's no nullification of the item itself from the fact that taste is a factor also to do a mitzvah, not just for prohibited items. So in order for that to work, it has to be that there's no nullification of the original item. If it works that the item is nullified, but the taste lingering remains a separate prohibition, So then that should only apply to prohibitions, which is where the Torah legislated it. But it should not apply to the performance.
performance of positive mitzvos. So that's the first proof that Rab Chaim has. But then he says that there's a proof to the second approach, to the other way also. Because the Gemara in a few places indicates that this prohibition of taste is a specific factor when it comes to prohibitions, but we can't compare it to other areas of halacha. So for example, the Gemara in Pesach Mandaf Memdalit says that in order to learn out from the case of the Nazir, who's prohibited in the taste of wine, we'd need a kalva chomer. So it's not so simple to just extrapolate from there. Likewise, the Gemara in Chulin says that we can't learn out from kudshim, from sanctified meat, to other cases of taste. And the Gemara in Nazir and Daflamid Zayin says that we can't learn out from Nazir because that case is more strict that he's even prohibited in the grape skin. So the Gemara is indicating in all these places that the prohibition of taste is a specific halachic prohibition with regards to certain prohibitions where the Torah told it to us. We can't just extend it to all prohibitions and it's certainly not telling us about the process of nullification that if taste lingers then the item was not nullified to begin with because then that would just be a concept of halacha which we could then easily apply to other cases and other areas of halacha. So this all indicates like the second approach that there's a specific prohibition on the taste which is separate from the item itself even though the item was nullified in certain cases the Torah said that there's an independent prohibition on the taste that lingers. So now we have a problem because both of the ideas that Rab Chaim suggested seem to be reflected in different Gemaras. So there's a contradiction between which idea is the correct one and somehow we need to synthesize both of them together. So Rab Chaim suggests something very creative which is that it's true the prohibition of taste is an independent prohibition that the Torah introduces. But once the Torah now prohibited the taste, that in turn makes it that the whole item is not nullified. So even though the item would have been nullified, even though there was a taste, that ordinarily shouldn't matter to the nullification process. But then the Torah clarified that the lingering taste is still going to be prohibited. So that in turn makes it that the whole item is no longer nullified. So that accounts for the discrepancy in these Gemaras. The reason why we can apply taste also to mitzvahs like matzah is because once the Torah told us that taste stops the nullification process, so it's also going to help us be able to do the mitzvah of matzah using the taste of wheat because now the wheat flour is no longer nullified. On the other hand, the Gemaras that say we can't just apply the concept of taste wherever we want because the concept of taste is where the Torah said that something is prohibited, so that's also correct because we need the Torah to clarify that the taste is not included in the nullification process so that it can stop the nullification process. And Rab Chaim has a proof to his formulation because the halacha is that no saint tam gam, if something gives off a taste, but this is not a good taste, it's a bad taste, so that's permitted to eat the overall dish. A taste is only prohibited if it gives a good taste. So the Gemara Nabodazar, Daf Samach Zayin, derives this because Nevela, any dead animal, which is not fit to be eaten by people, a non-Jew couldn't eat it, so that's permitted. So we derive from there that that applies to all prohibited food items in Halacha, that if they're not fit for human consumption, so then they're permitted. So we apply the same thing to a bad taste, that it's also permitted. So Rab Chaim quotes that the Rishonim ask that this bad taste of no Saint Tom Lifgam is not inedible. It's not that it's totally unfit for human consumption. 
consumption. It just tastes a little badly. It's not a great taste, but it's still fit for human consumption. So how can we include that under the category of something which is unfit for human consumption, like a dead animal which people can't eat? How do we extrapolate from something which is really inedible to just a no St. Tom gum, something which gives a little bit of a bad taste? So the answer they say is that there's a different criteria when it comes to taste than the actual food item itself. The food item itself, in order to be permitted, would have to be inedible to people. But the taste, because the whole prohibition is on the taste itself, it's not an actual food item. So if the taste is even a bad taste, even though it's not inedible, that's the equivalent, that's the same thing as an inedible item of food, so that would be permitted. So this approach is making a strong distinction between the actual food item versus the taste. And there's a different criteria at which point each of them becomes permitted. So says Rab Chaim, that's only going to work if the taste is an independent prohibition, meaning the item itself was nullified, but now the taste lingering is prohibited on its own. So then we could say that the criteria for permitting the taste is as soon as it gives off a negative taste, even if it's not totally inedible. But if we say that the taste means that the whole item was never nullified to begin with, so then you can't differentiate like this. You can't say that if the taste is a little bit negative, it's still permitted to eat because it means that the whole food item was never nullified and the criteria for permitting the actual food item is much higher. It has to be inedible to people. So it's not going to be permitted if this taste is just a little bit negative because it's going to mean that the whole food item is still prohibited. So Rab Chaim says this approach only works the way he formulated it, that there's a separate prohibition on the taste, but that prohibition means that the item itself can't be nullified. So that's why we can apply a different criteria to the taste than the actual item. If the taste is a little bit negative, then that already means that it's permitted, so the food item becomes nullified and the whole dish is permitted. But it's still true the other way, that if it's a good taste, so the Torah prohibited it, so that stops the whole item from becoming nullified. So now Rab Chaim ties this all together and he returns to the issue of whether we can combine two prohibited tastes in order to prohibit the larger dish. So he says that this is going to depend on why the taste is prohibited. If it's from the perspective that there was no nullification, so when it comes to nullification, as we said earlier, any two prohibitions can be combined. We see that clearly from the case of the yeast or the spices where we're combining Truma and Klaim or Orla and Klaim, even though it's two different prohibitions, but they can join forces together because the issue is not whether we can combine these two prohibitions. We don't need to combine them. The whole issue is whether the dish is able to nullify the taste. And if it's not able to, so then even if it comes from multiple prohibitions, it's still going to prohibit the entire dish. So when we evaluate things from the criteria of Bittel, whether it's nullified, so then it's clear that two different prohibitions can both join forces together. But with regards to the issue of taste, Rab Chaim's explained that it's not purely a bittel question, because in fact the bittel occurred, so the food item itself was nullified, but there's a separate prohibition on the taste, which then prevents the nullification, but since it requires an iser of the Torah, the Torah has to step in and prohibit this 
taste. So that means we do need to combine different prohibitions. Again, as we said earlier, when it comes to punishing someone, so then we need a combination of the prohibitions. Otherwise, we can't combine the items in order to punish them. So the same is true if tam ke'ikar, if the taste requires an actual prohibition of the Torah, as Rab Chaim explains that it does. So then what follows from that is that we cannot automatically combine two different prohibited tastes because since we're dealing with the prohibition of the Torah, there needs to be something combining them. So this is now going to be a major distinction between ta'am ke'ikar, whether the taste is the prohibition, in which case it cannot come from multiple prohibitions, versus the cases of the spices and the yeast, where Rab Chaim says that that's not a ta'am issue. The prohibition in those previous Mishnayos is not based on ta'am, it's based on how those food items affect and change the overall dish. So the yeast creates the bread and the spices change the whole dish. So those are not purely a question of ta'am ke'ikar. They're not based on the taste. That's exactly why we can combine two different prohibitions because they don't require the Torah's prohibition in order to prohibit the overall dish. It's prohibited because of a bittle issue. Since the yeast made the bread, bread and the spices changes the dish. So it's not included in the rules of bittel. There's no nullification of those prohibited items. So since the only perspective there is the nullification, so we can automatically combine two different prohibitions. But in a case where the ta'am, the taste prohibits it, so then we can't automatically combine two different prohibitions because it's not a bittel issue. As Rab Chaim's explained, it has to do with the Torah's prohibition of the taste. So anytime the Torah prohibits something, it's either one prohibition at a time or there needs to be something special combining them like Rabbi Meir suggested with Losochal Koto Eva. So that's how Rabbi Chaim ties all the points of his discussion together. Now before we finish how this exactly answers the Rambam, it's worth noting that this is somewhat controversial what Rabbi Chaim is saying that in the earlier Mishnayos, in the case of the yeast and the spices, it's not based on Tom. That's not totally clear and we'll see different Different views at the end of this recording. But Rab Chaim is assuming that those earlier Mishnayos are not based on the rule of Tam Ke'ikar. It's based on a similar but different rule that something which changes the overall dish cannot be nullified. So that's a bittel rule as opposed to Tam Ke'ikar, which as Rab Chaim's explained is not a purely bittel related rule, but rather the Torah needed to step in and prohibit the taste. So now Rab Chaim's last step is that this analysis is going to explain why the Rambam changed the interpretation of the last Mishnah, which has to do with the carbon meat. The Rambam interprets that Mishnah as talking about three separate cases as opposed to where all the meats were combined, like the previous Mishnayis. And now the explanation is because the case of the meats is certainly based on Tam Ke'ikar. It's not like the yeast or the spices where it changes the food. It's just a regular case where prohibited meat and permitted meat got mixed together and there's taste from all of them combined. So since that's based on the rule of Tam Ke'ikar, we can't combine three different prohibitions. So if one of them is Pigol and one of them is Nosar and one of them is Kodshe Kodshim, it's not automatic that they can all combine forces and 
in order to prohibit the overall taste. So that's why the Rambam had to change the interpretation of this Mishnah to say that each of the meats is separately mixed in with the permitted meats. And the question that Rab Shimon and the Rabbanan are debating is whether meat which was originally permitted to the Kohanim and is now prohibited, if it gets mixed in with other meats, can a non-Kohen eat it or not? So that's a separate debate than the prior two Mishnayos. But the Rambam is forced into that interpretation because you can't combine the tastes of these different meats together because since the Torah needed to prohibit the taste, so that works like the case of punishing someone. They're both based on a prohibition of the Torah, so we can't automatically combine two different types of prohibitions together. So that's why the Rambam is forced to say that the interpretation of this case is different than the two before it, which were not based on a specific prohibition of the Torah, but they're rather based on the fact that the original prohibition was never nullified. So this is Rab Chaim's analysis of the Rambam. But now, as is his style, Rab Chaim never stopped searching for the truth, even after he had said something incredibly brilliant. So here too, he poses a major question on his approach. So at the beginning of paragraph four, he points out that in the first case of the Mishnah, where the person gets punished for eating Arla and Klaim, we combine it in order to create the measurement to punish them. So we saw two of the opinions, but there's a third opinion. So far, we saw Rabbi Meir's opinion that we combine both of the prohibitions to create the measurement. Reb Shimon disagrees and says that we do not combine two prohibitions in order to punish the person. And then Rabbi Eliezer Omer, there's a third opinion of Rabbi Eliezer that mitstarfin bin Saintam of that we do combine the two prohibitions with regards to taste. So the taste of them both combined would prohibit the larger dish, but we do not combine them in order to punish the person. So Rabbi Eliezer seems to flat out contradict Rab Chaim's whole idea that when it comes to ta'am, we do not combine two different prohibitions because Rabbi Eliezer says clearly that we take Arla and Klaim, two different prohibitions, and we combine them with regards to no Saint Tam. We take both of their tastes and together they prohibit the larger dish. So this seems like a flat out contradiction to Rab Chaim's theory that when it comes to ta'am, we do not combine two different prohibitions. So Rab Chaim says that there's still a way to defend his approach, even according to this Mishnah, because the Rosh in his commentary on the Mishnah has two ways to explain the view of Rebbe Eliezer. He says that the two prohibitions of Orla and Klaim do combine with regards to taste, but not to prohibit. So what does that last line mean? What is the case where Rebbe Eliezer is saying that you can't combine them in order to do something? So the Rosh has two explanations. One is that we don't combine them in order to punish the person. So if the only way to get to the minimum measurement is to combine the Orla and Klaim, we do not do that in order to punish them. That's explanation number one. Explanation number two is that it's referencing the special halacha of how to nullify Orla and Klaim produce, which do not get nullified unless there's 200 permitted produce against it. So the Mishnah would be saying that let's say there's one piece of Arla and one piece of Klaim. You don't need 400 permitted produce. You only need 200 because we don't combine the Arla and the Klaim together. So that's the distinction Rabbi Eliezer is making. When it comes to liquids, we do combine the Arla and the Klaim. And in order to nullify it, the whole taste of the whole prohibited mixture would have to be nullified. But when it comes to solids, we do not combine them. So we do not require 400 in order to nullify 
nullify a combination. We only require 200. And the reason for this distinction is because the prohibition of taste is from the Torah, whereas the prohibition of the 200th is only Midra Banan. So since the taste prohibition is much stricter, it's Mida Oraisa, so we're more stringent and we treat the two prohibitions together. As opposed to the rabbinic prohibition of 200 times, where we're more lenient and we treat each prohibition on its own. So now according to this second interpretation of the Rosh, it's possible to say that Rabbi Eliezer actually agrees with Rabbi Meir's view at the beginning of the Mishnah that for punishment we do combine the two prohibitions but Rabbi Eliezer is dealing with two separate cases. He's saying that for taste we do combine it but for solids we don't combine it but in no way is he disagreeing with Rabbi Meir. According to the first approach of the Rosh then clearly Rabbi Eliezer is disagreeing with Rabbi Meir because he explicitly says that we don't combine them for punishment which goes directly against against Rebbe Meir. But in the second interpretation, he's never commenting on Rebbe Meir's view, so it could be when it comes to punishment, he agrees with Rebbe Meir. It's only for solids and the 200th rule that we don't combine them together. So now, if Rebbe Eliezer fundamentally agrees with Rebbe Meir that Los Sochal Kol Toeva is a catch-all prohibition which combines the prohibitions with regards to punishment, so then he's also going to hold the same thing with regards to Ta'am. So this explains why Rebbe Eliezer is going to disagree with the Rambam's ruling because Rebbe Eliezer rules like Rebbe Meir, that there's a catch-all prohibition of To'eva. So just like it combines things for the punishment, it also combines the prohibition of Ta'am together. And that's why we're able to use two different prohibited tastes combined in order to prohibit the larger dish. But the Rambam who rules like Reb Shimon that there is no combination prohibition so it follows that when it comes to Ta'am there's also no combination prohibition so that's why we can't combine the Ta'am of two different prohibitions. So yes it's true Rabbi Eliezer's line contradicts the Rambam but that's because he holds like Rabbi Meir whereas the Rambam rules like Rabbi Shimon. Now in the parentheses, Rab Chaim deals with the question that if Rabbi Eliezer follows Rabbi Meir's view that there's a catch-all prohibition of to'eva, which combines the different prohibitions, then why shouldn't that also apply to the case of the solids? So why don't we apply that same catch-all prohibition to the Klaim and the Orla, which are solid, which would mean that they do combine and we need 400 times against them, not just 200. So Rab Chaim has two possibilities. He says either because it's drabanan so we're more lenient and we look at it from the perspective of the core underlying prohibition. We don't apply to'eva because we want to be lenient for something which is prohibited midrabanan. Or alternatively, he says that the whole concept of nullification in 200 is based on the prohibitions of orla and klayim, but it never applies to the prohibition of losochal kol to'eva. There's no halacha that in order to nullify a to'eva prohibition, that needs to be 200 times. So when we evaluate that case, the only question is how to nullify the Klaim and the Orla. So there we're not going to combine them under the catch-all prohibition. So that would account for the difference between the solid case versus the punishment or the Ta'am because there is a punishment and there is a prohibition of taste for the prohibition of To'eva. So that's why we have to take it into account. But when it comes to nullification in 200, that never applies to Losocha Kol To'eva. So the only thing we factor in is the Orla and the Klaim prohibition. So that's why they don't combine because each is a separate prohibition.
Now, Rab Chaim points out that this whole solution in the Rambam, how he could interpret Rabbi Eliezer, is obviously only going to apply in the second interpretation of the Rash. But according to the first interpretation, so there Rabbi Eliezer is explicitly saying that we do not combine Orla and Klein with regards to punishment. So that means he clearly disagrees with Rabbi Meir, and he does not hold of the catch-all prohibition of To'eva. So if he's still saying that we combine them with regards to Ta'am, so then that explicitly contradicts. Rab Chaim's approach in the Rambam because he's arguing that the prohibition of taste is a special iser of the Torah. So in order to use two different prohibited tastes, there would need something combining them. So Rabbi Eliezer, who does not believe there's any combination, but he still combines prohibited tastes, would obviously be contradicting Rab Chaim's approach. So the first interpretation of the Rash contradicts Rab Chaim's approach, but within the second one, we could say that Rabbi Eliezer and Rab Meir are a different tradition, but Rab Chaim and the Rambam are explaining Reb Shimon's approach. Now Reb Chaim ends the piece with a Yerushalmi at the end of the second chapter of Orla, which is going to be a proof to the Rambam. And it's very nice, Reb Chaim explains each step of this short passage in the Yerushalmi. This is commenting on another Mishnah. The Mishnah has a case where Basar Kodshe Kodshim, the meat of the strict Karbanos, so those are only eaten by the Kohanim, as well as the meat of Kodshim Kalim, which are the more lenient Karbanos, so the meat could be eaten even by a non Kohen, but only by people who are Tahar. Someone who is impure, whose tame cannot eat any of the carbon meat. So if those two pieces of meat got mixed in with regular meat, so the Mishnah rules that someone whose tame cannot eat any of this dish because there's taste of the carbon meat in it, but someone whose tahor, even a non-Kohen, could eat the dish. And the Mishnah does not record any debate about this. So it doesn't say that Rab Shimon allowed even a tame to eat it. So the Yerushalmi records a debate about whether there is a debate. So Rab Shimon ben Lakish said that there is a debate about this Mishnah. And the way Rab Chaim explains this, he holds that the case of the Mishnah is where the Kodshim Kalim are Tameh. So both pieces of meat had a problem for a non-Kohen. The Kodshim Kodshim is anyways prohibited for a non-Kohen, and the Kodshim Kalim is Tameh, so it's also prohibited for everybody. So it's only Reb Shimon who holds that we don't combine the two prohibitions together who's going to say that you could eat this dish. But the Rabbanan who disagree with Reb Shimon and they hold that we would combine the two prohibitions, so then you can't eat this dish because both of the pieces are prohibited. So that's Reish Lakish's interpretation of the Mishnah, and that's why he holds that there is a debate about this Mishnah, and the Mishnah, which is lenient, is Reb Shimon's view that we've seen a number of times already. Rabbi Yochanan, on the other hand, disagrees, and he holds that there is no debate about this Mishnah, and again, the way Rab Chaim explains this is because he disagrees about the case of the Mishnah. He holds that the two pieces of carbon meat were both Tahor. So for a non-Kohen, only one of them is problematic, the Kodshe Kodshim, but the Kodshim Kalim was permitted. So even the Rabbanan of Reb Shimon, who ordinarily combine both prohibitions, but here there's only one prohibition to begin with, so therefore the whole mixture is permitted. So now the Yushalmi asks a question on Reish Lakish, which is there's an idea that all the prohibitions which are categorized under Truma, so there's Truma, there's Trumas Meiser, there's Bikurim, there's all sorts of 
prohibitions, which are called truma. So they're all combined together. And everybody agrees with that. Even Reb Shimon, who's generally lenient, when things are called the same, even though they're different prohibitions, so there he's strict. So the Gemara asks, why isn't this a case like Truma, where all these various prohibitions are grouped under the same thing, because they're all Kudshim, even though there's differences in the details. So the Kudshay Kudshim are prohibited to non-Kohanim, because that's their prohibition, whereas the Kudshim Kalim, in this case, are prohibited because they're Tameh, but they're all grouped under under the category of Kudshim. So why shouldn't they be combined even according to Reb Shimon? And it should be prohibited. So the Gemara answers that Reish Lakish's opinion is based on a brisa of Bar Kapara. In a case where there was carbon meat with pigol meat, with nosar meat, that all got mixed together. So Reb Shimon allows that mixture. He's lenient and the Rabbanan disagree. They're stringent that you can't eat the mixture. So we see clearly from Bar Kapara, that there is a view that even though they're all Kudshim types of prohibitions, we do not combine them according to Reb Shimon. And that's how Reish Lakish interprets this Mishnah, that even though the two prohibitions are grouped under the Kudshim category, we do not combine them. And that's why, according to Reb Shimon, this mixture is permitted for someone who's Tahor. So that's the Yerushalmi explaining Reish Lakish. Now, Reb Chaim points out, why is the Yerushalmi quoting Bar Kapara's Brisa when we literally have a Mishnah, which says the exact same thing. It says the same case of the carbon meat and the pigol and the nosar. And again, it says that Reb Shimon allowed it. So why does the Yushalmi ignore this explicit Mishnah and instead quote the Brisa of Bar Kapara? Says Rab Chaim, this is proof to the way the Rambam interpreted the Mishnah. The Yushalmi understands that that's the way to read the Mishnah. So the case of the Mishnah is different than the case of Bar Kapara or the case that Reish Lakish is talking about. The case of the Mishnah is either or. It's not a combination case. It's where each of the pieces independently got mixed in with permitted pieces. But that's totally different than what Rachel Lakish is discussing, which is a combination case where the Kudshim column and the Kudshay Kudshim got mixed in together. So that's why the Yushalmi has to quote Bar Kapara, which even though he uses similar language to the Mishnah, but his Brisa is a case where all three pieces combined together, which is what the Yushalmi is looking for. The fact that the Yushalmi quotes Bar Kapara's Brisa instead of the Mishnah indicates that the Yushalmi interpreted the Mishnah like the Rambam, that the case of the Mishnah is very different. It's not a combination case. And that's why it used the Brisa because it was looking for a combination case. But now the Brisa of Bar Kapara does raise an issue on Rab Chaim's whole approach. Because now we do have a view in the Brisa that in this case, if all three carbon meats got mixed together, we would combine them in order to prohibit the overall dish. So that goes against what Rab Chaim said, that when it comes to the prohibition of taste, we don't combine different prohibitions. But here in this Brisa, even though there's three different prohibitions, we still combine them according to the first view of the Brisa. Raisa, even though the problem is clearly one of taste. So that indicates that even with regards to Tam Ki'ikar, we combine the taste from different prohibitions. So Rab Chaim answers that the first view in the Brisa of Bar Kapara is going to be Rabbi Meir. And he, of course, does hold that we do combine different prohibitions under the banner of Losochal Koto Eva. So just as Rabbi Meir does that for punishment, he also does that with regards to Tam Ki'ikar. So the Brisa of Bar 
Bar Kapara is reflecting Rabbi Meir's view, but again, the Rambam holds like Reb Shimon with regards to combining different prohibitions, so that's why for Tam Ke'ikar, we don't combine different prohibited tastes. So this is Rab Chaim's approach to explain the Rambam. Again, the key conceptual point is one that he's revisited a number of times already, and that is that the prohibition of Tam Ke'ikar, when the Halacha prohibits the taste, it's not saying that there's no bitl, there's no nullification of the original food item because the taste is lingering, but rather there is a bitl, but since there's a taste, the Torah prohibited that taste also. And according to Rab Chaim, this is the key to understanding the Rambam's interpretation of the sequence of Mishnayos in the second chapter of Arla, which records the debates between Reb Shimon and the Tanakama, and the Rambam interprets various of those cases differently. And the reason is because they play out differently depending on whether the question is one of Bittel or the Isurim of the Torah. So when it comes to punishment and Ta'am, those two play out consistently because they both involve a prohibition of the Torah, as opposed to questions of Bittel, which are also internally consistent, but they play out differently because the question is not what the Torah prohibited, it's what's going to nullify the taste, so there we're automatically going to combine different prohibitions together. So that's how Rab Chaim sets this up. Now one assumption that Rab Chaim makes is that the question of the yeast and the spices is not a classic case of Tam Ke'ikar, the prohibition in those two cases is not based on the taste, it's based on how they change the foods and the dishes that they're put into. Now, this is not entirely clear, and there's different commentators on different sides of this question. In the new Reb Chaim's, with the commentary of the Atzeh Chaim on the bottom, so he quotes that this is a debate between the Chavos Das and Reb Kiva Eger in Yeridea Simintzari Ches Sif Ches. The Chavos Das holds, like Reb Chaim, that the problem in the case of the spices is how it affects the food, but Reb Kiva Eger and the Primagodim as well, they hold that the issue is a regular Tam Ki'ikar, unlike Reb Chaim. Now, in the Sefer Imros Avram on Mishnayis Orla, at the end, in his discussion of Perak Bey's Mishnadalid, so he quotes that the Prichadash in Simen Tzadiches Sifkat and Gimel raises the same issue with regards to the yeast. Is the problem a regular Tam Ke'ikar, or is it because of the way it affects the food? And he quotes that the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah in Orla, he uses the phrase, Kivan Pu'ulaso, since you can see the effects of the yeast. So the Rambam is saying, like Rab Chaim, that it's not an issue of Tam Ke'ikar, it's because of the way the yeast affects the dough. Now, on the other hand, he quotes that Rashi and Chulin on Sari Testament Beis uses the phrase, Dahainu no Saint Tam, that this is a regular case of no Saint Tam. So this may be a debate between Rashi and the Rambam, whether the prohibition in the case of the yeast is a regular one of Tam, or it's based on something more because the yeast changed the dough. But that would fit nicely with Reb Chaim's approach because he's explaining the Rambam. So consistently in the Rambam, this would be a valid way to explain it. So again, Reb Chaim's assumption that the yeast and the spice cases are not based on the classic Tam Ke'ikar prohibition. So that follows in the approach of the Prichadash and the Chavos Das, and most importantly, the Rambam seems to take that in his commentary in the Mishnah on Orla, whereas there does seem to be another tradition that those are regular cases of Tam Ke'ikar, and that's based maybe on Rashi, Reb Kiva Eger quotes something like that. So there are two ways seemingly to understand this. On the other hand, Reb Chaim is explaining the Rambam's rulings, and in the Rambam, that certainly seems a valid assumption to make.